Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. We're so glad you're here joining us for another great design, art, landscape-related topic. Uh, we are always mm-hmm. brainstorming new new issues to cover and hope that it's informative and, and especially entertaining wherever you are listening. We're sharpening our pencils today. Oh, we are sharpening our pencils today. <laughs> Very good. This is a fun topic today. We've done some back-to-basics topics and certainly talking about the landscape itself, the the plants and how to care for them and and prune and plant. And that's obviously a huge component of landscape design is just the plants themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And since they're this living medium, it's you know maybe the what we think of as the harder part to landscape design. But today we're going to cover really almost a an art or graphic design topic, and that is the art of drawing and how that can assist you in your practice of landscape design. Certainly a great idea for, for you know, this day and age where we may be at home with <laughs> certainly our electronic devices, but it's, I, I'm finding it's nice to unplug a little bit. There is some downtime as we're at home kind of waiting to see how world events develop. And that certainly is made, I guess, the feeling is one of greater connectedness because of some of the electronic media that we have, you know, listening to podcasts or watching shows or connecting by video chat. I do think all of that, I guess I'll speak from obviously for myself, that there is a sort of an oversaturation now of, I mean, I've always been very highly connected, like oh, I'm on my laptop and now I'm, you know, on my phone and just detaching from that because I'm not getting in the car and driving somewhere as opposed to I'm just in the house all the time. Right. (laughs) So getting out for walks, looking out the window has been a nice break from all the online checking the news, (laughs) things like that. And this practice seems like, again, um, something that would complement that slower pace of life very well. Right. And drawing, it's, it's timeless. One of my landscape architecture professors, his voice comes to mind in our various studio classes where you'd be given a problem, a landscape design problem, you'd have to come up with a concept, which would be like a rough sketch, and you'd develop that. He would say, you don't have to be Michelangelo. You just communicate. Just use paper and pencil and communicate. And then there, when, I, when I was in advertising, one of the, uh, the creative director, we were making ads. He said, it has to communicate. It doesn't matter how pretty it is. And I think that those hold true for drawing, that it's... I mean, approaching it with some humility, in a sense, like letting go of what others think. Is this going to be the best drawing? It's just more or less recording some information on paper. There's no substitute for that. And I mean, there's even like working with children a little bit with art classes and such. There's a period, I don't can't remember what exactly at what age, but children become self-conscious. Mm. And it goes from all children drawing at some age, like let's say it's at seven, all children draw. And then at some other age, like nine, it drops off. And the kids that don't feel that they're good at drawing, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And they more or less never do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing posts from my sister and her children where they're out, you know, doing the sidewalk chalk oh, right. art. And um, my my nieces and nephew are fantastic artists. And it's so fun mm-hmm. to see their, their work. But as you say, I mean, we really do sort of like categorize ourselves as those who can and those who cannot. And, right. Um, 
you know, if you're not trying to sell it for money, (laughs) what difference does it make (laughs) what other people's opinions are? You know, before we dive into the topic, it's funny because I'm so used to getting caught up on your travels and what projects you're doing and things are a little more humble these days and we're trying to stay busy again, doing sort of like our online consultations or classes online and things like that. It is Mm -hmm. exciting, I guess, to have that opportunity to develop more of our online class content. Yeah, it's really good that we're able to move a lot of the projects we started in the spring forward. We're just in that phase where we can move them forward and then hopefully realize them later this spring. Right. There's lots of, there's my design work in the background, then the team that does the rendering. We filter the the drawings through to them that do the complex CAD drawings. Right. Okay. So the drawing that we're talking about is not the complex CAD drawing. So if you don't know how to use that amazing product from Autodesk, is it? Right. (laughs) It's fine. You don't have to. What we're talking about is the simple art of putting pencil to paper Mm -hmm. and sketching out what you are observing, essentially. So why don't you get us started with why drawing? Why is drawing important, do you think? Well, something happens when you draw and People can experiment with this. It could be a scene at your window. It could be a a still life, maybe of a bowl of fruit on your kitchen table. When you have to draw it, you have to more or less reconstruct what you see. You have to really study it. Let's say there's lemons and apples and oranges and bananas in that bowl. Maybe some of the banana is covered by the other fruit. So where does that intersection happen? So there's just like the physical, the actual outline of what you see. So then there's overlap, there's shadow, there's foreshortening. So that's when you're standing on a highway looking at the distance, the road gets narrower as it goes away from you. And so that happens with with all objects. They they recede. So drawing, why it's so important, there's no other way really to understand what's in the physical world. Drawing is one of the best ways to do that. You have to really study what's there. And it's often not what you think when you start to record it. You're like, wow, I didn't realize that that overlapped. Or there's a phenomenon, there's like a blind study where it could be a still life or a figure drawing. You're looking at the subject, but you don't look down at the paper and you just start drawing. And if you really concentrate, you can record it very accurately. The filter that the mind has, it can work against you and you can draw what you think it should look like, but it's not actually what it looks like. I remember coming from a somewhat artistic family, doing drawings of my own and kind of realizing that like the perspective I was trying to achieve was sort of almost warped. I don't know if it was because of the angle of the paper or again, sort of not seeing it quite accurately as I was, as I was getting it on the page. And my mom had a trick, which was to either hold it up to a mirror or Mm -hmm. turn the page over and kind of look through it to see where maybe your perspective had skewed a little bit. It's just really evident that even though you're seeing it, sort of conjuring it in your mind's eye, it is that application of that picture to the paper that I think provides people the greatest challenge. Right. I've used that as when I was an illustrator. I did a lot of portraits, caricatures. So holding, you're drawing up in a mirror. You see imperfections very quickly. So drawing's important. You don't have to be good at drawing to do it. And the more you do it, the better you get. People will say that like about you know, other practice. Like the only people that scoff at a practice is someone that just hasn't done it enough. Like, oh, that, that doesn't work. Well, have you tried? how often is you try it? Well, I gave up when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> so it takes some humility to approach it and have no expectations. I'm going to try. Maybe it's somewhat of a secret. 
some of these world-renowned landscape architects and landscape designers, I would say maybe only 30, 40%, definitely less than half are good at drawing. Now, they have many skills. They're maybe very technically minded. They have a vision. They're great communicators. They're great problem solvers. Not that it's the average designer is not that great at drawing. There's plenty that when firms do a finished model or maybe there'd be a watercolor of the scene or the finished drawings, those are all done by people that only do drawings. So the designers have a good eye. It's not, it's not that they're that great at drawing, though. Well, then again, asking why drawing is important. So you've mentioned it forces you to see, but if you mm-hmm. can get away with doing design without drawing, why would drawing be an important tool? It's, well, it's a way to organize your thoughts. So even if you're not going to render like a great Renaissance artist, it's very important to communicate ideas, organize ideas. There's like a level of truth in drawing that you can't, people that do civic planning, so on a very large scale, like regional, they use drawing down to Ellen Shipman that's designing a perennial border, which is like down to the every 18 inches. So even if you're not great at drawing, the practice of it makes you a student of it. And then you can discern good drawing from bad drawing. So as a professional landscape designer, as you said, you know, the final drawing isn't isn't even rendered by hand. It's done in AutoCAD. So why is this a useful tool for you in your professional practice? Like we talked about, I work on tracing paper often on a site survey or a site plan. So I rapidly put information down. Then the person does the renderings. They can read my rough sketch. <laughs> so without that, it would be very hard to tell them. Like words are, are insufficient. Like within the office, it's vital to communicate to other designers information, to communicate to other professionals, to the public, to a client. Actually, clients could be another professional that's, that have hired us, or the client could, could be residential or commercial. So when you're in the field doing a design, it's called a charrette, where you're rapidly going through ideas. That's very, very valuable. There's what's called a thumbnail sketch. So it's it could be the size of your thumbnail, but it's, it's more or less a small sketch. And so working out, rapidly going through ideas, like having, having a conversation. It's a visual conversation. And I often turn the pencil over to the client. I'll say, oh, well, you show me what you mean. And then they'll, they'll draw it. And I'll say, oh, so when you think of a, of a pyramid topiary shape, that's what you mean. That's not what I would have envisioned. I would have thought a pyramid was this angle. You want something that's actually very wide. Or it's more like a cone. So speaking of shapes, is that important to be able to practice with? So we want to talk a little bit about like, what do you study? How do you get better? But it's just making me think because I have seen you in the field quickly sketch out the difference between, you know, almost like the lollipop shape on a stick versus like letting a tree find its natural form or whatever. So, I mean, just basic circle squares, triangles, is that something you use as a foundation for drawing? Right. Doing this, I mean, people might know the word is still life. So there's famous still lives of Paul Cezanne. It's like peaches on a table, you know, where they feel like they're going to roll off of the canvas. They look so real. Or uh, Mary Cassatt's famous for for drawing mother and children. You know, it's just so realistic. Like you feel like they're right in that room with you. So a simple practice of it could be from a still life or like you indicated, just drawing simple shapes, like drawing a circle, a square, a cone. And then what shadows that would create. 
So that gets you to think with any type of drawing, you want to always think of where the, the light source is. Well, in landscape design, it's, it's the same. No, the, the plants need light to grow, to photosynthesize, but the, the shadows that are cast are how you're going to experience it visually. And so drawing, so the way a landscape is going to be, have light and shade, is identical to drawing. It's just both light and shade. So you can, that's why it translates so well. You can draw where you want a nice dark background and there's going to be heliobores and tulips and other plants are going to read. You're going to be able to see that in front of that dark background. When I think of the tools of drawing, I think back to, I don't know, like high school and the doodles that I would make in ballpoint pen or mechanical Uh pencil. And you'd have your college rules, spiral bound notebook, and you'd actually draw draw quite a lot on that. I almost, I bet the lines helped too. So that's a bit of a preface for the question. What basic tools should you have if you're trying to get into drawing? The materials matter. Like when mm. we talk about pruning, I always say the tools are so important to have really good quality. Not that they need to be expensive, but they need to be good quality. And that, that would be true. So with drawing, when people say a number two pencil when you take a standardized test, I believe that's a, that's a 2B pencil. And so B, it means it's, it's a soft lead. H would be hard. So like a 6B would be very soft. There'd be like graphite everywhere. So that, but you could, you could draw very dark shadows very quickly. So a 2B pencil would be fine. There's a variability with that. So it's soft enough. If you have a light hand, you can do a light line. If you really bear down on it or if you use the side of the, of the pencil so there's a lot of lead, you can make a very dark line. So like a 2B would be fine. And mechanical pencils that I use, I like those. You can also have a 2B. You never have to sharpen it, ever, ever, ever. It's always, you just keep clicking it, and there's always like a nice point, and it's nice and dark. I always seem to have too much pressure with those. I mean, I'm the person who will like click it out, get the little bit of lead, and then snap it off (laughs) immediately. And be like, snap, snap. Right, there's like, like like you need like a light touch. I guess the mechanical pencils. I don't think I have that. (laughs) <laughs> so so good quality pencils that come in all different shapes and sizes. There's more sophisticated. There's Conte crayons. Like when you see Michelangelo's drawings, his figure drawings, where it's like a like a sienna color, that's a type of a of like a waxy crayon, like Conte crayon. So for figure drawing, you could get more sophisticated. And then good paper. So I mean a basic so hot press paper is like glossy. So if you're doing a, if you had a for art class, that kids need to do a poster, and you're going to do markers and ink. You'd want hot press is good. It's not going to absorb anything, like whatever your, whatever media is going to sit on top. So for drawing, you want cold press, which would be watercolor paper, like regular copy paper. You know, would would be that, but regular copy paper doesn't have much of a tooth to it. So the sketchbooks I like, it's a black cover. It's bound, not very expensive. And the paper doesn't come out. So like a, some of the sketchbooks, over time, if the sheets are glued in, it will start to fall apart. The sketchbooks I like, probably about five inches by eight inches, give or take. It's e small enough I can take it anywhere with me. That's an important component. So whenever an idea strikes you, you know, of course, there's, when I'm sitting down at my drawing table, I have bigger sheets of paper. But where a lot of the design actually happens is in that little book. And I have and try to have it with me at all times, even to have it next to the bed. When I think of an idea, I write it down. 
So um, any other tools? I mean, if you wanted to get into color or something, uh, you mentioned figure drawing. And of course, we're talking about landscape design. So maybe you are thinking through color combinations, mm-hmm. you know, are for some reason, I've never found and I've never invested in an expensive set, but colored pencils, I, I find tedious, oh, <laughs> like right. hard to draw with. I mean, I almost wonder if crayon would be better for me, but I know that's what about pastels? I mean, is that just taking it a little too far or do you have to be like a super enthusiast to get like into that world? Yeah, there's plenty of people. There's plenty of designers that do color studies, whether it's watercolor, charcoal, different kind of types of pastels. I don't tend to do that myself, but for many, it's they're thinking in color. So to me, I think I think more in line and then the color follows. But the combination I like is a pencil of some kind because you can erase and the mechanical pencils have an eraser on them. Do you suggest having a separate eraser? I do. I mean, like when you're, when I'm sitting at the drawing table, I have an art store eraser. So it's a white, it's very soft. So it's not going to rip the paper. You can erase on tracing paper. They even have, I think it's probably, a, I think it's a German company, Koei Noor, that makes all kinds of drawing material. It's a yellow hard eraser. You can erase ink with it, which I mean, that's really, so erasers, when I was a full-time illustrator, I, to some extent, I use, there's a mechanical eraser where it spins around like a drill and you're erasing. So you can rapidly erase. <laughs> That's funny. If you're making your living, you yeah. know, so every minute counts. Uh, okay. So good paper, good quality paper, a book that's bound. So the sheets don't, aren't loose. I mean, they're very small ones that would be, you know, three inches by five inches that you could really put in your pocket. The uh, big sketchbooks, they look great in the art supply store. But when I bought those, I don't I didn't intend to use them. Oh, yeah. So the good quality materials. There's even, there's travel watercolor sets. Some people love those where when you're traveling, and those can be like three inches by five inches, and a little tiny water bottle. And so you can really, you can record what's there, you know, traveling, or even just in your neighborhood. So it's it goes beyond just the line, but it's like the feel, the light, the shadow, the color. So are there different types of drawing? I mean, I think of, again, sketching or pen and ink, I think, from a kind of like, again, I don't know, I keep going back to my teenage years. I haven't done drawing in a long time, but I really enjoyed more of the like graphic novel style where it's not photorealistic, but yeah. So, so what are the different kinds, would you say? Well, let's see, there's like a conceptual sketch. So it could be very, very rough. Then there's maybe like a loose drawing where it's you're relatively realistically conveying what's there. Then there'd be a detailed drawing where it's very realistic. You're really recording. There's light, shade, light, shadow. In the process of figure drawing, when you're sitting in a class with a model, some of the warm-up sketches, they'll say, okay, now we're going to do a 30-second sketch. And you have to record everything that's there in 30 seconds. So you're making just very broad strokes or a 10-second sketch. So that, that practice, would tr- it translates to landscape design. When I've done trainings, when we've been pruning some of these like sculptural gardens where hedges or boxwood or other plants are the element, I even use that rapid approach. And I said, okay, you've got 20 minutes to get through the 75 feet of, of, of this cloud garden. You know, just rapidly pruning what's there and you're, not gonna, you're definitely not going to make it perfect, but you're going to 
refine the whole area. So what were you, you were describing, I, I like this idea of the, the rough outline, being able to kind of sketch what you want to accomplish in terms of landscape design. But then as you were mentioning the, how this, you can look at the landscape and not really see it. Correct. Um, right. And one of the features of that is, because I was thinking one of the harder things to draw I think this was even true when they were doing like computer animation. It's hard to get hair to look right. Mm. <laughs> and it's hard to get, I think, foliage to look right. Certainly grass, although you can start to get like movement in the grasses if you're doing animation, but it's because it's all that fine detail. Mm -hmm. So one of the, it was, it just sort of then kind of got me onto thinking of the really fine detail of the incredible art of botanical drawings mm -hmm. or, you know, like the plates that you see in um, field guides, for example, and that maybe that would be a place of interest for people to start. So we talked about sort of the still life of the fruit on the table, mm -hmm. but then there's all this life in the landscape that you could be really trying to capture the almost scientific detail of a seed pod or a branch, like a stem or a leaf. Right. There's actually, um, and we can we can add this to our show notes, there's an organization called the Biodiversity Library. So mm -hmm. the URL is biodiversitylibrary.org. And they have, I want to say it's almost like 2 million, 2 million digitized botanical drawings available online. So Boy, if you wanted to wow. look up something or imitate how to do this style, and it looks like they have things like Women in Natural History is some of their featured content mm. right now. So this is very exciting. They're pulling from the natural history museums all over the world and asking them to gen, uh, sort of donate content. And it's a very incredible resource for anybody who likes the botanical drawing as like an art form, as a, as a science. And you can just check out the collection. And I think it's open source. So you can probably a great not copyright, copyrighted material as far as I know, although double check if you're going to use it in your own work. That'd be an example of illustration, drawing. Photography can be very explicit. It can record a lot of information. It is limited though. So drawing can be more detailed, more articulate than photography. Well, and I misspoke just a little. So the organization mm -hmm. itself is the Biodiversity Heritage Library. The URL is biodiversitylibrary.org. So the full oh. name is Biodiversity, BHL, Biodiversity Heritage Library. Check it out. I was so excited when I found <laughs> it. So for, could be an enthusiast, a scientist, you name it, studying plants, some of the field guides, an illustration, it, it can convey complex information more effectively than photography. When it's a photograph, let's say, of a bird or a plant, people might comment, well, that, that looks peculiar. Is it is it's capturing like a moment in time? A drawing, it can take into consideration all the facets. Like this bird's wing, when it's extended, it it's, looks twice as long as when it's folded, uh, for instance. And so in some of the field guides, they'll have, they'll have the orchid, like the way you see the flower, then they'll more or less dissect it, and they'll say, all oh, these are all the parts of the orchid. This is the leaf from the side, from the top. In a way, like drawing is like a search for truth. It's like, what is the full truth of an object? Whether you're creating that object, whether that's a garden, or it's a plant or an animal, it can convey complex information. So what are some of your tips for improving your own drawing skills? If this isn't something you've thought about since, what, we said age seven? <laughs> <laughs> One of my, in, art, in undergraduate art school, figure drawing is a big part of that. And so the teacher was 
Bob Cole, who was a renowned fine artist. So to teach drawing basics, it's very tough to teach the basics. So the people that were the most skilled in college, the most skilled professors taught the most basic subjects, which are really the most important, that foundation. And his mantra would always be, darker darks, lighter lights. So when you look at a great drawing, the darks are very dark. So let's say there's an intersection of two lines, like there's the banana and then, and then a peach is in front of it. So the banana disappears behind it. So when those lines meet, the line darkens. So in reality, it doesn't actually do that. But to make it look like it goes behind, you bear down on the pencil, you get the darker dark. Well, I think you pointed that out. Where were we? It was one of the Midtown University clubs in Manhattan. And there's, I guess, John Singer Oh, John Sarge- Singer Sargent. Oh, and there was portraits. a portrait there where it's like the the dark almost faded into itself. And then when there was like the the white shirt, so somebody oh, was wearing right. a dark coat, but then mm-hmm. the cuffs and the shirt maybe stood out from that and helped convey, you know, then bring your eye to the face, obviously. And yeah, that was really striking. Yeah, John Singer Sargent. So the, the principles of drawing, when you're painting, you're drawing with paint. So painting, you have to be so skilled to do it well. It looks easy. So John Singer Sargent was a master. So his classic, uh, like all these society portraits, basically, or could be politicians. So the, the darks are opaque. I mean, I'm sorry, are transparent. It's like a wash. So you can, you can see the canvas, possibly. It's very dark. And then the solids, like that white shirt, it might, like he's like caking on butter. It's just very solid. It feels solid. And then one of his... You know, imagine people wearing these chiffon, a woman with a chiffon gown that glisteny and pillowy like shoulders. His classic is with these very deft brush strokes where just with a few strokes, he's conveying that, that material, which is, it's drawing. It's, you know, it's that brush. It's similar to a pencil. You can use the fine tip or you turn it on its side and you get a very broad stroke. He would do the same with a brush. So in terms of ways to improve, it's so interesting because this reminds me of, um, I work as a voice teacher. Mm-hmm. And so it's very similar to this. It's something we, we are almost all born doing and then it fades away over time. But the great thing is that students will, will come to me in my studio and sort of open themselves up to the feedback process that I as a voice teacher provide, because of course, anybody can sing. If you have a voice, you can sing. And half the battle is encouraging the letting it out. And then, you know, and then we can refine and we can, imp- you know, increase the capacity and, and whatnot. Would you suggest drawing classes or can mm-hmm. you take one-on-one lessons? Like how else would you find support for your drawing? And believe me, I'm the last person who accepts criticism well, <laughs> constructive or otherwise. Like, absolutely. It's very, very difficult for me personally to receive it. But do you suggest that for your artistic practice? It's very helpful. Practice. I mean, it takes a certain level of vulnerability and being humble. And what are you saying? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so places to improve would be a drawing class that could be in person. I would, there might be drawing classes online. There's definitely... Let's hope these days, if you're going to start, maybe a drawing class online. Right. I mean, it's yeah. visual, so you yeah. can share your drawing. When I've been a drawing teacher... I always emphasize the positive. The students, the average student would be like self-conscious of, oh, it's not very good. I know it doesn't look realistic. It's the, in a way the drawing, I forget if it was a, 
who it came from, but every drawing is abstract. It's not really, it's, you're making more or less like marks to convey what's there. So this idea that it's like not realistic, it's never going to be realistic. The only realistic is the actual peach and banana. (laughs) And so people that are very good at it, you're more or less making marks and symbols to relay what's there. Being around other people that are drawing, you often learn the most from, from, from your fellow student. The teacher can do the demonstration, and then the teacher would circulate in a class often. Mm-hmm. But from fellow students, and so that could just be a family member, a friend, a parent, a child. You could say, I want to improve my drawing. Would you like to go to this park together? Or we'll set up a still life at home. The light source is very important. So if you're inside, having a desk lamp or a small lamp where you, you create this exaggerated light source like you would get from a candle. Then the lights are lighter and the darks are darker. It's easier to see the shapes that way. Yeah, it seems easier to like copy someone else's drawing, like to practice drawing their drawing than it is to practice drawing something that's out there. It's like harder to interpret because then you're just interpreting the symbols and kind of recreating them. That would be a practice. I mean, people, when you go to an art museum, there's often people copying a painting. They're recording what's there. As an illustrator, I would use a projector. So I would want to do a portrait of somebody. I would take a photograph of them in an opaque projector. It projects on a wall or on your, on your canvas, your paper. And then I would trace that. So you would think, oh, yeah, just copying. It's very, to get it to look really good, it's very hard to do. So it's, you're, getting, you're roughing it out. So even using tracing paper and copying a photograph or you're tracing the elements, if all you do is trace it, it's, it's going to look kind of flat. So to make it look realistic or like there's life to it, you still have to bring your own artistic spirit to it. And that could be a good exercise, really, you know, tracing a photograph or a painting or an illustration. And you might be surprised, like let's say it's a, it's a person on a horse in the photograph their legs are probably going to be huge. If you're on the ground looking up, their legs are going to be enormous. Their head is probably going to be very tiny in proportion, which when you look at it, it just looks realistic. When you start to draw it, you're like, wow, it's hard to convey that. Yeah. So anything else to mention before we wrap up today? Well, on a professional level, the type of drawing we do, there's the rough sketch that I do, and that goes to the rendering person. Then there's refinement where I make edits and corrections. So that's more or less like an, an illustrative plan is what the client sees, which is it's technical. It conveys what's going to be there with the walls, the paths, the plants, uh, the walks. It's a pretty picture. So it's, it's, a, it's conveying like a mood to, to construct. And then there's the construction drawings, which for some projects we do. We don't do it for all projects. It's not always needed. So the construction drawings are generally black and white, and it, it's showing where you could hand it to a builder, and they would it would show exactly where everything is. It's all a scale drawing. Then there's even beyond that. There's a detail, so it would show this particular wrought iron gate, and then we, you could give that to a fence company, a wrought iron company, and then someone that's within, let's say, a fence or wrought iron company, they're going to do what's called shop drawings, where they're even more detailed where they're you know, really rendering how to physically make it. So the drawing, it really goes from that rough sketchbook and it could go all the way to a wrought iron artist that's actually going to make that, that gate or that fence. Neat. 
Okay, well, we hope you get to sketching. Maybe we'll put up some of your drawings as photos on our Facebook page and folks can check those out. And uh, (laughs) practice, practice, practice. It is a physical discipline, so muscle memory is often helpful. It just means having the confidence to do it. So we encourage you to do so. And any other thoughts? We like doing a design principle at the end of the episode. So one one category would be scale and proportion. So imagine you have four squares. They're all squares, but they're various sizes. So, so that's used if you're trying to show depth. You could repeat telephone poles. They're all poles, but they're receding into the different into the distance. So scale and proportion. And that's how you see in a garden. So you're repeating, let's say, boxwood down a path. There's scale, there's proportion. So that's a, a principle to consider. Great. Okay. Well, we hope you have an opportunity to get in the landscape sometime soon. And we're so grateful that you joined us for another week. We look forward to our next episode and we're wishing everyone out there just the absolute best. And uh, thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.